Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 240. My name's Terry Frost, and this time around, there's actually movies. There's not the AMA like in the previous ones. There's not me and doctors, I'm talking shit. There are actual movies being looked at. The first one is from 1944, and it's the Jules de Saint-directed adaptation of an Oscar Wilde novella, The Canterville Ghost, starring Charles Lawton, Robert Young, and Margaret O'Brien. Then we go from 1944 to 1978 for the seminal and classic college comedy Animal House, directed by John Landis, starring John Belushi, Tim Matheson, John Vernon, Verna Bloom, and a host of others. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and we'll start talking about funny shit. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast done in the style of film credits. I'd like to thank Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the Technicolor Consultant, Claire, the Script Doctor, Gary, the Prop Master, Morris, our Musical Director, Jan, our Dialect Coach, Armin, our Key Grip, Matt, the Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine, our Scientific Advisor, Julia, the Casting Director, Chris, the Camera Operator, Christopher, the Gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, our foley artist. Alyssa, our location scout. Mark, the second unit director. Paul, the special makeup effects director. Tammy, the donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve Sullivan, our script doctor. Dylan, the goat wrangler. Eric, the set security lead. Richard H., the set photographer. Mark D., the extra. David L., the extra. And Richard C., our transport co-captain. Plus Andrew, our necessary film critic. We have Kerry H., our accountant. And Kerry L., our other spiritual advisor. Thank you so much to all the patrons for dipping into their pockets and helping out with the podcast. This has been a Paleo Cinema Martian Drive-In production. The end. Okay, so how you doing? Um, it's fucking cold here, actually. It's cold and rainy, and the temperature barely got into double figures today, and the wind was really, really hard, and I am totally over winter in case my tone of voice didn't convey that. So, yeah, um, I didn't do much today. I just kind of hunkered down and survived the, uh, what they call an Arctic blast. It's actually an Antarctic blast. I don't know why they call it that. But it comes up out of the Southern Ocean and basically puckers everybody's nipples. Roll on the hot weather, I say. So, yeah, I haven't done too much there. But, however, I have been progressing with my Japanophilia, even though it's still almost eight months until we go to Japan. I've been watching lots of Japanese anime and revisiting some, actually, that I previously seen one of them is from 1965 or so uh it's called princess night and it was written by osama tezuka who wrote astro boy 
And it's about um, a fairy tale medieval kingdom. And young Princess Sapphire is the heir to the throne, but she can't be the heir to the throne because she's a girl. And so she has adventures and she's a bit of a tomboy. One of the things is that she got a male and a female soul at the time of birth and um, God sends an angel uh, called Tink down to earth. This isn't very religious, so don't worry about that part. To kind of um, get the male soul out of Princess Knight. So it's a gender-bending before gender-bending kind of anime, and it's really cool. It's got that um, Astro Boy style of animation. It's in color. Picked it up um, at JB Hi-Fi, and I'm enjoying going through the episodes. It is quite fun, and uh, the villains have all got big European noses, all the usual stuff that you get with the Tsuka anime. And, um, yeah, I'm enjoying that one. I'm also re-watching some of a couple of other somewhat more modern anime that I like. Um, I've been watching some Urusai Yatsura, those obnoxious aliens, which is a, a lot of fun and um, quite politically and morally incorrect in some ways. But it's a 1985, I think it is, anime. Um, Rumiko Takahashi did it. Uh, and nonetheless, it still is a lot of fun. And then I was also doing um, binging season four, which I hadn't seen before, of a much more modern mid-90s anime, Yu-Gi-Oh! So I've been watching season four of that, which turned up on Amazon Prime. Along with a lot of stuff, Amazon Prime here in Australia has got some really interesting old TV series on it. It's got Mr. Lucky, based on the um, old... Cary Grant movie, but it's a TV series from the early 60s. I think Peter Gunn's on there as well. The Adventures of Yancey Derringer with Jock Mahoney and the early 1960s version of The Invisible Man. So there is some old stuff on there and I'm all strength of them for doing that as well. You know, revisiting 50, 60 year old TV series, adventure TV series and giving them a little bit of oxygen on the platform I definitely approve of. And it only costs us like seven bucks a month for Amazon Prime. At the moment, it's five dollars a month, but it's going up in about a year to seven dollars a month. And at that price point, I'd be silly not to avail myself of it and um, enjoy the fact that they've got a little bit of kind of temporal depth to that particular platform, which I really, really appreciate. I think it's something that Netflix, in particular, can learn from. Uh, they really don't have too much older stuff on the Australian Netflix platform and as storage becomes cheaper I think that there's more opportunity there to kind of you know do a bit of historic stuff and take us back to earlier times and simpler times and who knows what's going to go viral in these days of the internet somebody could do the right thing with Yancey Derringer and suddenly Jock Mahoney becomes a big retro thing there's always those possibilities but I wouldn't really lay my money on it uh so what have I been watching as far as movies are concerned there's been a few not that many but a few um actually three that I want to mention uh we Sally and I because we're going through Miyazaki's oeuvre for Sal we watched Princess Mononoke, which I really enjoyed. I hadn't actually seen Princess Mononoke before, but I really like it. It's probably up there with maybe the top three or four of my favourite Studio Ghibli movies. Now, um, I won't tell you too much about it because it's complicated and involves um, wood spirits and all the usual kind of appurtenances of a decent Miyazaki movie, but the action sequences are fantastic. 
The, there's a goriness to it. The interesting, most interesting thing about it is there isn't really an evil villain in this piece. Um, both sides in the antagonism have points in their favour and, and the characters are much, much more complex than you'll see in many, many other animations, particularly those that come from a Judeo-Christian belief system where you've got to have good and evil and they've got to just kind of be one or the other which is something that kind of cripples storytelling in our culture to a large extent. But Princess Mononoke is definitely recommended. So I went from the sublime to the ridiculous and watched uh, Frank Tashlin's movie, The Girl Can't Hope It, Help, uh, The Girl Can't Help It, with Tom Yule, Jane Mansfield and Edmund O'Brien, which kind of mocks the rock and roll craze as it was then that went on to become something much more, of course. But they, um, the musicians they've got in the background, they, they kind of incorporate just basically music videos of people like Little Richard, Fats Domino, Julie London, and a whole bunch of other people in there to kind of give the feel of rock and roll to the piece. And it's fun. Uh, it really is fun. I don't understand the attraction of Jane Mansfield. Yes, she is or was undoubtedly and abundantly mammalian, but um, the cartoonish reaction that men have to her was kind of funny. I mean, there's some great sight gags in there as well, which make it almost cartoonish at times. Edmund O'Brien steals the show as a gangster. Um, and, yeah, it's it's kind of uh, very much of its time, but it does have a great watch it, rewatchability to it. And in spite of the fact that Jane Mansfield is clearly channeling a pumped-up Marilyn Monroe persona and pumped up in more ways than one, it kind of works uh, and is one of the kind of silliest and most fun comedies of that particular time. So we wa- I rewatched that and I kind of enjoyed it. Then, because Sally will not go past a shark movie, we saw The Meg with Jason Statham and Ruby Rose, Lee Beeming, Rain Wilson and Jessica McNamee. And I kind of liked it. Uh, it was fun. It's uh, one of those big, dumb movies that you kind of got to park some of your suspend, you know, some of your disbelief in neutral and just go with it. It's got an enormous shark in it. Uh, it's got some really lovely production design too. The production design for the underwater um, kind of sea lab is very cool. And some of the submarine designs are very, very cool as well. Statham does a good job with a script that maybe doesn't give him much to work with. Rain Wilson is good, though his character does go through some really weird emotional and character changes during the film. Uh, in spite of that, I really did enjoy it. It's something you watch on the big screen because it's fun. There are people escaping in most unlikely ways from the jaws of the giant shark. There's some really kind of cool action sequences. The special effects are first class. The film cost a lot of money. And except for the script, uh, the budget was 130 to 178 million, roughly, which um, you can't really tell which because they don't give you the numbers particularly accurately. Um, and it's made 213 million at the moment, so it's definitely got its bait back on that one. And if you're in the mood for a big dumb shark movie before Sharknado 6 comes out, then this is definitely the one. Um, Statham does the job well and I think that um, given the oversaturation that Dwayne The Rock Johnson has at the moment we should see some more films like this and fun films 
from Statham because he, he's definitely um, got the chops to do the gig. He's got the action hero physique and ability. And because he was an Olympic diver, he definitely isn't adverse to getting wet. So if you're in the mood for that kind of thing, I know that some movie critic friends of mine really panned the Meg, but I think it's one of those movies which in the old days was definitely something to watch on VHS or to rent from a video store. But because it's not, I, I didn't mind watching it on the big screen. And we had a funny experience when we went to see it at the local too because I have a senior's car which gives me half-price cinema tickets and some cheap ice creams and drinks. So I ordered my ticket and Sally's, and I said, we've got, we've got one concession, blah, blah, blah. They put through concession for both of us. So we both got an ice cream and a drink and the tickets, both as if we were my age. And Sally's 17 years younger than me. She was a bit pissed off with that from that point of view. But we both got out of it for you know, quite a reasonable price as far as movie tickets concerned. So that was a definite plus as well. Uh, the... I'm going to try that trick again. It may not work, but what the hell, give it another go. It was totally accidental in that case. No, actually, I won't. I won't. I'll play fair. I'll be fair to the um, local cinema and tell them that Sally's ticket is full price and see what Sally says. But, uh, yeah, the, the Meg, uh, it's a kind of conditional recommendation because not everybody's into that kind of movie, but it does have a lot of fun there and um the little doggy doesn't die there's a spoiler so all is good with the world so uh the other thing we watched yeah we re-watched um avengers infinity war which kind of still worked the second viewing we got it on um blu-ray and we decided to stick it in the machine and it still works there is so much crammed into that that um, I'm amazed that they kept all of the balls in the air with the different plot points, the myriad characters they had to involve in it. I still don't like the fact that Wakanda was there pretty much as cannon fodder. But given the fact that wherever they took Vision, um, Thanos was still going to come and get him, and the end result for everybody would have been the same. Wakanda was the natural place to take him because they had the highest tech weapons. The fact that they fielded infantry was kind of silly, though I can see how it would be necessary from a visual point of view. Um, it really is weird that they actually did infantry rather than high-tech um, weapons of another kind, but maybe what kind of roles like that, and maybe they didn't have the other kind of um, weaponry. Who knows? There's probably a rationale that Kevin Feige will come up with for that at some stage but uh yeah it, it's um it's the blockbuster of the year so far and i really am hanging out for the second part of it which i think may end up being called infinity gauntlet if the rumors are true so anyway now i'm going to take a break and then i'm going to talk about the first of the two movies which has been re remade a couple of times since then and sorry i dropped something in and it is the 1944 mgm comedy the Canterville Ghost, starring Charles Lawton, Robert Young, Margaret O'Brien, and directed partly by Jules Dessin, who directed Rafifi. I shouldn't tell you this before bedtime, but the Dowager Duchess of Stutfield was found one night on the balcony outside her bedroom, stuck staring mad. 
sir, my record speaks for itself an unbroken reign of terror for 300 years. Well, record or no record, as long as her ladyship's around, you've got to behave yourself. Coffee, what happened? You better run along home, lady. I got a pack. You're going away? Yeah. Oh, Coffee. Okay, so The Canterville Ghost is a 1944 MGM movie based on the 1887 novella published um, published in February 1887, written by Oscar Wilde. Uh, the movie, as indeed did a lot of Hollywood films at the time, took liberties with the original source material and changed things around a bit. But as a standalone entertainment, it, it worked for me. It really had a lot of fun to it. I like Charles Lawton in the role of Simon de Canterville, the ghost, and it, it kind of, you know, it hit the sweet spot. I was in the mood for a bit of a comedy. And I hadn't seen The Canterville Ghost before. And if I had, I don't remember. I may have seen it when I was very, very young. But it really was a lot of fun. Got to thank my friend Trevor Clark for fixing me with the movie. Uh, Trevor got a whole bunch of movies from a friend interstate and brought them back to Melbourne. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of them. And came over to uh, my place, basically with an enormous box of DVDs and said, here, take what you like and give away the rest. I've given away the rest by now. But I picked out, amongst other things, the Canterville Ghost, which is on the um, Warner Archive collection, even though it's an MGM picture, Warner's ended up with the rights to it. And um, it surprised me at how much I really enjoyed it. It's very much set in World War II, and I'll read you the praise I've got on Cinemageddon. In the 1600s, cowardly Sir Simon Canterville, played by Charles Lawton, flees a jewel and seeks solace in the family castle. His ashamed father seals him in the room where he is hiding and dooms him to be forever be a ghost until one of his descendants performs a brave deed. Simon believes he may be saved when he meets Cuffy Williams, an American kinsman stationed with a troop of soldiers in the castle in 1943. Will this blood relative save the family honour or will his blood be as yellow as the rest of the Cantervilles? So that's basically it. The movie stars, of course, Charles Lawton, who we know from any number of films, Spartacus, Advising Consent, Witness for the Prosecution, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Bribe, a really good 1950 film noir, which I mentioned in a much earlier Paleo Cinema podcast. You might want to go back and check that one out. Um, a fantastic actor. Really, I haven't seen anything where Charles Lawton was less than wonderful in it. And, of course, he directed one film as well, the classic film noir, Night of the Hunter. There have been a whole bunch of different adaptations of this story. Of course, it's in the public domain, being such an old novella. Uh, there was the a 1985 version with John Gielgud in it. There was a 1970s BBC version with David Niven in it. You can find that one on YouTube. It's about an hour long. And Niven is really, really good in it. I, I did watch a part of it today, and I'm surprised at how good David Niven was in the role. There's a 1996 version with Patrick Stewart in it, and there's even a um, and a Canadian, there was a Canadian adapt, uh, adaptation done as an animation in 2014. Uh, there's a Belgian-French one done in 2016, which I haven't seen either. And there's a movie from 2008 called Boothnath, which is a Bollywood adaptation of the Canterville Ghost. So the story's got legs. And it's a the, the role of Simon Canterville is a really good role for an actor 
because you get to play him as cowardly, you get to play him as poignant, as heroic. And the way Lawton plays him as well as kind of a cherubic, charming character. Um, there's a real lockable charm to the character that Lawton gives us. It's a role that's meant to be played very large and theatrical and bombastic because for hundreds of years this ghost has been basically performing scary theatre in Canterville Hall to scare people for hundreds and hundreds of years. So inevitably he's a theatrical ham in a sense which makes it even more funny uh, supporting him is robert young the american actor that people knew deck from decades later as marcus welby md and in fathers knows best he was never a kind of charismatic actor he was a kind of leading man type but never really distinguished but in this kind of lighter role playing the character of cuffy williams an american gi who just happens to be a descendant of the, the Decantervilles, who has the family birthmark, and this is the kind of movie where people have family birthmarks. There's only one group of people I know who have a distinguishing family trait, and it's my sister Linda, because her father, Brian, had a silver blaze in the middle of his hair, and his father had it before him, I and mean, my sister Linda has it, and her son Billy has it as well, so they've all got this family trait of really odd streak of white hair through the middle of their head and that's it was it isn't a birthmark but there are distinguishing family traits that can be passed down through a number of generations now one of the interesting things to get back to the movie and out of my family one of the interesting things is that the duel that sir simon dodges back in the uh, 1600s is with a giant plot called the bold sir guy and that character actor doesn't get a credit in the movie. But it's actually Tor Johnson from Plan 9 from Outer Space because they needed somebody who was really big and bulking and imposing. And so they put Tor Johnson in a long black wig and a big fake beard. He doesn't get any dialogue. He just kind of stands there looking menacing. And much younger Tor Johnson by about a decade than we got in Plan 9 from Outer Space and probably a, a few kilos lighter and with a bit better muscle tone but um he's the one who menaces charles lawton in this movie so the movie then cuts to the 1940s and a whole bunch of u.s army rangers are being billeted in the canterville castle and uh, lady jessica de canterville played by margaret o'brien who's six or seven at the time is the lady of the household she makes friends with one of the guys cuffy williams played by robert young the rangers um are all kind of the standard gi template characters from the 1940s all good guys and uh their lieutenant is played by frank phelan who played dobie gillis's father in the many loves of dobie gillis in the 1950s uh and there are a few other uh, actors who get in there as well rags raglan plays one of the other gis rags raglan's interesting character used to do a double act in vaudeville on, um, on stage with Phil Silvers and died early at the age of 40, only a, a few years after making this film. What, here's how he died. He went on a drinking binge in Mexico with Orson Welles in 1946, came back and he was flying to New York to do a nightclub gig with Phil Silvers. Uh, got sick, 
and ended up dying because his kidneys and his liver failed because of alcoholism at the age of 40, mind you. So his funeral, at his funeral, Sinatra sang. And Sinatra took over the gig with Phil Silvers in the nightclub after Rags Raglan died to fulfil the contract because Phil Silvers was a close friend of Sinatra's at the time. So there's that. So the Army Rangers aren't people who are scared of anything, really. And so they uh, meet the ghost. Uh, The lieutenant doesn't believe them, of course. So they set up a bunch of booby traps and other things to kind of trap him. And they come to a kind of accommodation with the ghost, which is kind of strange. And both Lady Jessica and Cuffy make friends with Sir Simon, who's a kind of cowardly lion sort of character a little bit. But then he comes good. And um, we find out that what he wants most of all is to die. And to die, one of his family has to do something courageous. And that's a problem because the rangers go out, encounter the Germans, and Cuffy freezes. And he's about to be thrown out of the rangers and back to his normal unit. Because under combat conditions, he just froze. But this being an MGM comedy of the time, everything turns out right in the end. I won't spoil how that happens. Now, the interesting thing is that Lady Jessica was played by an actress called Margaret O'Brien, who was t- uh, known as one of the best criers on the MGM lot. She was in Meet Me in St. Louis, and she gets some good crying scenes with Judy Garland in that. And the weird thing and the horrible thing and the nasty thing was the way her mother got her to cry on screen. When she was doing um, Meet Me in St. Louis, her mother came up to her, and there's an emotional scene where Margaret O'Brien's got to cry. And her mother went up to her and said, June Allison's a better crier than you are. And Margaret O'Brien started crying for the scene. Some would call it method acting, some would call it child abuse. But um, she's still alive. In fact, she's 81 years old now, and she's still around. Uh, let me see if I can find out anything. No, no, she's still around. The last credit she has are things like Murder, She Wrote in 1991 and as almost an extra in a couple of pieces and as a few documentary things as herself. But uh, she's still around and she's an engaging kid. She gets some very complex dialogue in this movie and for a child so young, she carries it off really, really well. And uh, I kind of like her for for that. Now, one of the other interesting things was that at the time, and this faded very, very quickly, Charles Lawton had a bit of cloud in the studios and he was not pleased at all with the film's original director, a guy called Norman Z. McLeod, who had done stuff for um, Marx Brothers, amongst other people. Uh, he did Monkey Business. He did Road to Rio with Crosby, Hope and Dorothy L'Amour. He did Horse Feathers. But he and Lawton just didn't get on. So Lawton picked out a 30-year-old director that he knew and gave him the gig, and that was Jules Dassin, who went after he was blacklisted by the House on American Activities Committee, did Rafifi in um, France in 1955. He did Top Carpi as well, which is another fine film. Uh, let's see, uh, Circle of Two, which is his worst, last and worst film, which is that horrible um, movie with Tatum O'Neill, and Richard Burton about a love affair between a schoolgirl and a 60-year-old painter. Um, that one is probably not going to get a re-release anytime soon. If we leave that blip at the end of his career, 
there were a bunch of fine films he did. He did Brib Force, he did The Naked City, Night in the City, Thieves Highway, and, of course, The Canterville Ghost. And of Dessan's films, this is definitely, without much doubt at all, with the possible exception of Top Carpy, his funniest. And there's an interesting balancing act in this movie too. Not anything to do with Charles Lawton, but with Robert Young's character. Because his character has an act of cowardice in there. Um, Cuffy Williams basically chokes when um, he's supposed to be killing Germans. And to have a character's redemption happen after that kind of thing, in a movie that occurred during the in the middle of World War Two, is a tough ask. But the fact that they slapstick up his redemption and, and make it a little bit outrageous really does kind of leap that act of cowardice and make it acceptable in the context of the film. And that's kind of an interesting approach to take. And it's a tough ask, particularly in wartime, to have um, your one of your leading actors really not do his job and threaten the lives of his friends by not doing his job and have that crisis of self in the context of a comedy. It's a little bit unusual, but it, it kind of works in this one. Because of the script, um, the support he gets as an actor, because, again, Robert Young was a bit of a bland actor, very light, though he did play a German spy, I think, in a Hitchcock film. I'm trying to remember which one. Now I'm going to have to pause and find out which one. Yeah, of course, it was Secret Agent in 1936 with Madeleine Carroll, Peter Laurie, and John Gielgud. But, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting arc that his character goes through and it's played well enough that we accept it. But, again, the heart of the film is Lawton. Now, it's not by any means one of Lawton's best roles. I think he was much more poignant in The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 30, uh, 39, I think it was. And he was much better in other films like Witness for the Prosecution and his last film, Advising Consent, when he was dying of cancer in 1962. But in this one, he, he does give us a charm, which is really interesting. And him playing against Margaret O'Brien, such a young and small actor, there is a real kind of friendliness and a real fondness between them. And Lawton was really good with kids in his personal life. He and his wife, Elsa Lanchester, decided not to have children because Elsa didn't want to have children because Lawton was gay and she didn't want to, even though they did have, at some stage, a sexual relationship, she didn't want to bring children into that, something which, in later life, Lawton bitterly felt bad about. But, um, yeah, he does... And also, he did record things for children... And with the children actors in the one movie he directed, The Night of the Hunter, he was really good with them as well. So he did have an immense fondness for children. He did Christmas things during his career and all sorts of other things like that. And it really does show in his relationship with the Margaret O'Brien character in this movie. Really does work. So if you get a chance to check out The Canterville Ghost, it is a bit of fun. It's light and I like Lawton in it, even though, as I admit, it's not one of his best films. So anyway, I'm going to take another break. Then we're going to get to a very, very, very different kind of comedy. The 1978 John Landis National Lampoon movie Animal House, starring Belushi, Tim Matheson, 
John Vernon, and a host of others. She's been scared stiff of you all her life. And I just wanted to prove to her that you wouldn't hurt a flea. Sir, my record speaks for itself an unbroken reign of terror for 300 years. Well, record or no record, as long as her ladyship's around, you've got to behave yourself. It is absurd asking me to behave myself, quite absurd. I must rattle my chains and groan through keyholes. I must gibber from the oriel window on the first and third Wednesdays in every month. It is my solemn duty to walk these halls. Well, in that case, you better get yourself another castle for the duration, brother. Oh, but Cuffy, he can't. He's the family ghost. Americans, child. What can a people without ancestors know about ghosts? This is Faber College in 1962. You know, 1962 had to be the best year of my life. I was a member of Delta Tau Chi. The Deltas, what a great bunch of guys. Pluto. Hoover. Uh, raise your right hand. Pinto. Flounder. Flounder? D-Day. Boone. It's not gonna be an orgy. It's a toga party. And look at me in 62. The Otter. School was fun in those days. The girl. The party. The friendships. The girls. Of course, we had our problems. Find me a way to revoke Delta's charter. You're out. Finished at favor, expelled. I want you off this campus at 9 o'clock Monday morning. Tim Matheson. Would you go out with me? And Donald Sutherland. There's Jennings. Now, is Milton saying being bad is more fun than being good? National Lampoon's Animal House. In a lot of ways, Animal House is the er college comedy. There, nothing that preceded it was anything like it. Nothing that followed it wasn't influenced by it in some way. It's just the quintessential film in that subgenre, and it was written by the funniest of the funniest people at the time. National Lampoon magazine was a social phenomenon unlike any magazine before or since. 
Now, if you want to know more about it, there actually is on Netflix a kind of biopic of um, Doug Kenny, one of the writers' lives, called A Futile Stupid Gesture, which stars Will Forte as Kenny, and it talks a lot about how Animal House was a great thing for his career, but a rotten thing for his life. He um, had drug dependency problems and mental health problems and died at the age of 33 in Hawaii under dubious circumstances. But we'll leave that bad stuff aside and talk about the movie. He co-wrote it with Harold Ramis, who we know from Ghostbusters, amongst other things, and Groundhog Day, and um, a guy called Chris Miller, who did a number of other things. He he was um, quite a good writer in his own right. He wrote for Screw Magazine in 1968, for instance. Then he went on to National Lampoon. Um, He didn't kick off really his career. He did a few other things like the uh, Michael Keaton movie Multiplicity in 1996, but really didn't um, go anywhere really large in his career. Let me just check his IMDb quickly. And yeah, no. (laughs) But anyway, uh, to get back to Animal House... It's said, as as the trailer indicates, in 1962, a couple of freshmen at Faber College, Larry Kroger, played by Tom Hulse, and Kent Dorfman, played by Stephen First, who played Veer on Babylon 5 for science fiction nerds like myself, um, are trying to become uh, freshmen at a fraternity because apparently fraternities were what you're supposed to do in 1962. First, they find themselves at the Amiga Theta Pie House Party, which is not their kind of thing, and they get marginalised fast by the white yuppies, proto-yuppies anyway, um, led by Douglas Needham, played by Mark Metcalf, and also with um, help from Kevin Bacon playing Chip Diller. Um, Then they wander over to a much interesting, much more interesting and much more slovenly fraternity of the Delta Tau Chai, which is the one known as Animal House because it's got the lowest scores. The students are always in problem, uh, in trouble with the authorities, led by Dean Wormer, played very straight-faced and interestingly by John Vernon, a Canadian actor who I first encountered playing some of the voices in the old Marvel superheroes cartoons in the 1960s. He was the first person to do the voice of Tony Stark and also... Prince Namor, the Submariner in that. Interestingly enough, um, he was born in Saskatchewan, but his original name was Adolphus Raimondus Vernon Agapowitz, which probably means he wasn't of Cockney heritage. In fact, he was um, of Austrian heritage, and and Vernon, with the pockmarked face, started out as a serious actor, of course, in things like Point Blank with Lee Marvin, the John Borman film in the 1960s, I think 1967, and he was in Mary and Dirty Harry, and he was also uh, played the character of Fletcher in The Outlaw, Josie Wales. But he's going to be forever remembered now as Dean Wormer in Animal House. Uh, we get Verna Bloom in there as well, playing his wife, who is an interesting character. Um, kind of a bit Mrs. Robinson combined with the Days of Wine and Roses. But uh, we get her in there. Then, of course, we get all of the really fine actors, Tim Matheson playing Otto, Peter Riga playing Boone, and there's a great chemistry between those two guys, which Tim Matheson talked about recently on Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, which I recommend if you wanted to find out what it was like being a young actor in the 
60s and 70s. It's a really good podcast episode to listen to. Uh, then Tom Hulse, of course, playing Pinto. Lawrence Krog, everyone gets a nickname. He got nicknamed Pinto in this. We know him most from playing Mozart and Amadeus really well. And his career hasn't got anywhere higher than that to this date. Uh, we get Bruce McGill, who we've seen in a number of things. He was MacGyver's sidekick in a few seasons of MacGyver. He was also Bruce Willis's friend slash enemy or frenemy, really, in The Last Boy Scout and a number of other things, playing D-Day. Um, let me see who else we get. Yeah, Douglas Kenny talking up in an almost non-speaking role as Stork. Uh, with a really seriously bad haircut, which was deliberately done that way. Uh, Donald Sutherland playing Dave Jennings, one of the professors, who's the cool professor on campus and smokes dope with the kids and becomes a third part of a romantic triangle. We get Karen Allen as Katie, who is um, the Boone's girlfriend. And again, there's a really nice Peter Regat-Karen Allen rapport there too. The chemistry between the actors in this film is above the level you'd expect for this kind of a movie. It was done fairly low budget. Um, Landis had only previously made movies like the Kentucky Fried movie and wasn't known for being guaranteed box office at that stage. And then, of course, you get John Belushi. At the peak of his SNL fame, he was flying out during the week to make this film and then flying back on Thursdays to across the US to do SNL. Um, we all know the arc of Belushi's career and the problems he had and how difficult it was for he and Landis to make Blues Brothers because of the excesses of Belushi at the time. But leaving this as a standalone, Belushi is a, was incredible. a charismatic actor. He could do the comedy stuff. Um, he was beautifully... T- his comedy delivery, delivery was beautifully timed. He was just lightning in a bottle in this one as John Bluto Blutarski. And um, even without, and to be fair, even without Bluto in this film, and for a large part of the film, he is a kind of off-to-one-side comic relief character to a certain extent. This would still be a good film, but with him on it, it just lifts it to that other level. The other interesting thing is the Amiga fraternity, who are sadistic as fuck. They have spankings as part of their ritual. There's a whole kind of under theme of everything they do which is repressed homosexuality all the way through now they're not the movie doesn't criticize being homosexual at all it criticizes the kind of repression that leads to this kind of abuse of other people so the movie doesn't make fun of them for that it's just kind of a subtext to the cruelty of the amiga um, fraternity people there is a, a bit involving them and a horse which is um, taken into the dean's office, which is, becomes a beautiful psych gag in the next scene. Uh, there's, there's a nice sense of comic escalation to some of the things that go on in this movie, which I really like. Bring the horse into the dean's office as a joke, and then what happens to the horse is very much in the, in the theme of National Lampoon's comedy. In fact, while I was looking for my book on Charles Lawton, for this podcast, I found a few uh, issues of National Lampoon that I've got. I got the science fiction issue and a bunch of other ones. And the comedy in the magazines that I was browsing through this afternoon and in Animal House is really consistent. National Lampoon created com- American comedy as we know it now. From National Lampoon, uh, the writers and actors 
then because National Lampoon did a radio hour and did some live stage shows in New York, that then gave the core of the genesis of Saturday Night Live, and Saturday Night Live has spawned a whole bunch of different actors into a whole bunch of different careers. Without National Lampoon, American comedy wouldn't be what it is today, for good or for ill, though I don't think they're particularly responsible for Louis C.K. Back in the 70s and the 80s, I loved getting National Lampoon and reading it cover to cover. Um, it was a shame that I couldn't buy those cheap record deals where they had with the record clubs in the early um, issues. I'd always liked that about American magazines of a certain type, including Playboy had them. They'd have like, you know, get five records for $5 and you couldn't avail yourself of that in Australia because they didn't do it overseas. There were a couple of record clubs that opened in Australia, but they ended up ripping you off. The first few records were really cheap and then after that you paid above street value for the records to be sent to you every month and getting them to stop was problematic because you couldn't call them up you had to send them a letter and they could claim they didn't receive the letter anyway that's another side issue and i'm digressing a lot um the weird thing is that i compared this movie to something like revenge of the nerds which really is horrible in its transgressions against women it's a misogynistic and you know sexually all of the heroes in this in that movie end up sexually assaulting women. There are a couple of problematic spots in Animal House as well. There's the um, the way that Otto tries to get um, a date in um, another college, in memory Dickinson College, which is a funny name for college anyway, and the way he kind of manipulates the college girls there doesn't end well because, um, well, I'm not going to spoil that, but they end up at a roadside bar which is um kind of interesting and shows how things were in the 1960s uh so that's kind of a bit off in some ways but it has a nice punchline because the guys end up being the butt of the jokes and not the women then you get uh, bluto's voyeurism in the women's dorm which could be played as really sleazy and horrible but somehow doesn't come across like that because Landis and Belushi do an interesting thing. Right at the start of Bluto climbing up the ladder to look into the window of the girls' dorm as he's undressing and having a topless pillow fight and all that other stuff, Belushi turns to the camera and smiles. So they break down the fourth wall and tell us that, yes, this is a movie, this isn't real, and these aren't really people being manipulated and perved on. It's a setup for a joke, which indeed it is. And... Even in spite of that, we do get a bit of kind of playboy-level eroticism with Mary Louise Weller's character Mandy and Bluto, which ends up being a setup for a joke at the end of the movie as well. And then you get the latter joke with John Belushi in it. In spite of the topless scenes and the kind of voyeuristic eroticism of it, it's played not with the focus on that eroticism, but with the focus on it being a setup for a psych gag and then a line at the end of the movie where you find out what happens to people in the future. Much more problematic in a way is um, the kind of relationship that Pinto has with the girl that he meets. Uh, work, she works in a supermarket. Claret is the character's name and they end up going to the toga party and Claret gets drunk and um, as she's undressing she passes out and we get a nice little scene with a kind of Warner Brothers cartoon thing with a devil and an angel sitting on 
uh, Pinto's shoulders, you know, should he or shouldn't he make or rape her, basically. And he ends up not doing that. But the um, interesting thing there and the problematic thing there is that Sarah Holcomb's character is 13 and doesn't tell him that till afterwards. And the movie's already shown her with her top off. So that's kind of sleazy there. Sarah Holcomb didn't do much after that. She did play the role of um, Michael O'Keefe's girlfriend in Caddyshack and did a good job of that too. I didn't go on to move further in, in her career. But yeah, that one is a little more problematic than Bluto's voyeurism. But it was a movie of its time and they didn't show him sexually assaulting a 13-year-old. At worst, he dated her and, and they were about to have sex, but it, it didn't happen. It's not really a justification for that, but I think this movie veers off certain sleazy possibilities quite adeptly in the way it does things. There are also some interesting bits on um, taking your convertible up to the hill and parking with your girlfriend. There are a couple of scenes of that which are quite funny and show the true nature of a couple of the Omega um, fraternity guys, which is kind of cool. And it plays against that kind of beach party, you know, going and parking up on the hill and just kissing with your girlfriend in a secluded spot with a view over the town. You get a lot of that kind of anarchy of the National Lampoon approach to comedy where the students are against the authorities to the extent that they have arbitrary rules which aren't always fair and which aren't always applied evenly or with any real justification. So we get um, some of that in there, and then we get the sheer anarchy of the parade through town at the end of the movie, where the guys in Delta House basically crash the parade as if it were a party, and anarchy ensues, including um, mortars setting off um, smoke bombs and Bluto emulating... Burt Lancaster in The Crimson Pirate to a certain extent. John Landis, the director, has said that Bluto was a combination of Harpo Marx and the Cookie Monster. And he plays it very much like that. It's um, it's a nice role. It, it uh, has that kind of anarchy about it. It has Belushi mugging a lot, but mugging to service the jokes and to service the narrative rather than mugging for mugging's sake. There was... Um, you can see it with some comedians who are over the top, uh, particularly some of the career of Jim Carrey. The mugging he does serves, serves Jim Carrey and Jim Carrey's character, but it doesn't serve the narrative. And in this case, Belushi in this role does the opposite. His um, Bluto is the anarchic nature of youth personified. He's the gross side of um, being a young man in... Uh, challenging environment in a sense and so they, uh, that works a lot better and ages a lot better than something say like Ace Ventura Pet Detective does and that's a kind of approach that I think that um, Landis carried on to the Blues Brothers with Jake and Elwood they really kind of kept the anarchy of Belushi's persona and had it service the story really nicely uh, the DVD I got of this, which again I've got to thank Trev for getting for me. He got this along with the Canterville Ghost. 
has, is the 2003 DVD edition, which is called the 2003 Double Secret Probation Edition DVD, because it's got a short film attached called Where Are They Now? A Delta Alumni Update, which is a mockumentary of Landis catching up with the cast um, 30 years after Animal House. Um, it's really interesting because they get a lot of the original actors. Of course, they can't get Belushi for fairly obvious reasons. But um, we get a lot of the other characters. It sounds a little bit like some of the comedy is improvised, but we get to see what happens to Ken Dorfman and Chip Diller and Dean Wormer and Mrs. Wormer and um, Babs, one of the girls from the girl sorority. Um, Marion Wormer, we get to see the Mrs. Robinson type kind of character. Um, we get Donald Schoenstein, who's one of the Delta House guys. We find out what happens to um, Otter and um, and Pinto and Flounder, the Stephen First character. Uh, it's it's real, and there is a nice little homage to Belushi at the end of it as well. If you can get a hold of that particular DVD edition, the Where Are They Now, is a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and particularly um, John Vernon. Right, not not too long before he died, really having a good time playing Dean Wormer in retirement. So you really should try to check that out because it's well worth it's your time, and it is very funny. But Animal House inspired a whole bunch of other films. There are a whole bunch of um, college comedies that came on after that. Uh, Pitch Perfect, Van Wild, A Real Genius, Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield. Um, it also inspired things like Porky's, Police Academy, the American Pie films, Up the Academy, and Old School, the one with Vince Vaughn and um, Will Ferrell in it. So it's a very influential movie. Apparently they were going to do um, a stage production of it in 2012 but nothing seemed to have come from that but um animal house is rightly and widely acknowledged as one of the great movie comedies of the 1970s it really does hold up well now um the joke even if you remember the jokes you won't remember all of the jokes and there are little bits of business that you'll notice that you didn't notice in previous viewings of this film and that's kind of cool i like the fact that there's little bits of business everywhere there's little name jokes throughout the movie for instance the um the motto of faber college is knowledge is good it's simplistic and and dumb basically and we see that right at the start of the film i also like the band that they have in the movie doing um the toga party and who they see also in a roadhouse um the, uh, the name of the band is otis day and the knights which is a very, very, very 1960s kind of name for a band. And the guy who played Otis Day, Dwayne Jesse, actually has been doing touring ever since with a band called Otis Day and the Knights and has um, turned that into a kind of career, which is really weird and interesting. He did a few other movies as well. He was in DC Cabs in 1983, with the Buffalo Rome in 1980, uh, which is the... Bill Murray movie about Hunter S. Thompson, which I like a lot. He was also, thank God, it's Friday, um, which I saw only a few weeks ago. Who did he play? He played Floyd in Thank God It's Friday. So, um, yeah, just to kind of wrap it up with Animal House, 
it aged well. It's aged well. It surprised me. I was a little worried after watching Revenge of the Nerds and doing that for ABC Radio about two years ago, where we were bitterly disappointed with the sexism and, and kind of mean-spiritedness of Revenge of the Nerds. But this one didn't have that. It really did hold up well, with the exceptions that I've already mentioned. And I felt a great wave of relief when, the, at the end of the film, I went, okay, yeah, that would really work for me. It, it's held up. The jokes work. The characters really work. And the whole thing holds together. And it's still got that wonderful, optimistic anarchy that I love from National Lampoon. I mean, rereading National Lampoon magazine again, yeah, there's stuff there that's sexist as shit, and there's a bit of racist stuff in there, which is not to be unexpected from people who went to Harvard University in the 1960s and 1970s. But there's still that kind of theme of thumbing your nose at authority and living life on your own terms that's been a part of National Lampoon and has carried on to a certain extent with Saturday Night Live as a kind of child of National Lampoon. But anyway, that's about it this time around. It's time to knock, knock, knock that naughty clock that says it's time to go. Thank you for listening. Um, I actually have the next bunch of podcasts lined up. Here's what I did, because organisation is not something that comes easy to me. I grabbed the DVDs I've got in the to-be-watched pile and got elastic bands, rubber bands, and found movies that fitted well together in that pile. And so I bound each of those two movies together with rubber bands. So all I have to do for the next Martian Drive-In is grab the next science fiction, fantasy, horror, rubber band pair of movies and do that. So I've got about two months worth saved up there, which I'm very happy about. It does take the pressure off about what fucking movies am I going to do for the next podcast. So all of that's settled now. Um, My job for this week, apart from all the other jobs I have this week, is to redo the credits for the podcast in the style of movie credits. And I'm going to include my dear friend David Cummer in the credits as a part of the credits, rather as a separate thank you as well. So anyway, look after yourselves. Watch some good movies. Watch some bad movies. Take care of yourselves and live life to the fullest until next week when I do a Martian Drive-In podcast. And two weeks from now, when I do a Paleo Cinema podcast, I will catch you later. And again, please support the podcast by donating a dollar a month or more at patreon.com if you are so inclined. Here are the credits. Take care of yourselves. I might put a bit of music at the end of the film as well, at the end of the podcast. Films are the thing I talk about. Podcasts is the thing I do. At the end of the podcast, I'll put a bit of music as well to keep you amused. Take care of yourselves. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast done in the style of film credits. I'd like to thank Tom the Focus Puller, Sarah the Special Effects Technician, Ian the Caterer, Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris our Musical Director, Jan our Dialect Coach, Armin our Key Grip, Matt, the Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine, our Scientific Advisor, Julia, the Casting Director, Chris, the Camera Operator, Christopher, the Gaffer, Miss Jane, the Wardrobe Mistress, Tansy, our Foley Artist, 
Alyssa, our location scout. Mark, the second unit director. Paul, the special makeup effects director. Tammy, the donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve Sullivan, our script doctor. Dylan, the goat wrangler. Eric, the set security lead. Richard H., the set photographer. Mark D., the extra. David L., the extra. And Richard C., our transport co-captain. Plus Andrew, our necessary film critic. We have Kerry H., our accountant. And Kerry L., our other spiritual advisor. Thank you so much to all the patrons for dipping into their pockets and helping out with the podcast. This has been a Paleo Cinema Martian Drive-In production. The end. sont bien d'être joyeux Pourtant s'il est une samba son tristesse est un vin qui ne donne pas l'ivresse un vin qui ne donne pas l'ivresse non, ce n'est pas la samba que je veux Good.